Welcome to the Commune Podcast. This is Jeff Krasnow. Now, many of you may receive my weekly Sunday Commusing article, where I address a breadth of issues from the spiritual to the sociopolitical. And on occasion, I will also record an audio version of these articles and release it here as a bonus episode. So today, on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, I share with you some recollections of that day and where we have come to find ourselves. If you're interested in receiving my weekly screed, sign up at onecommune.com and follow my regular rantings on Instagram at Jeff Krasnow. And without further delay, here's this week's commusing titled, Our Own Worst Enemy. September 11th, 2001. Bleary-eyed and knackered, we trundled into the Motel 6 in Santa Cruz at 2 a.m. after making the post-gig haul up the coast from San Juan Capistrano. Better to sleep in before the show that night at the Rio Theater than endure a hectic day battling traffic on the 101. I shut my eyes only to be jostled from slumber seemingly moments later. My trusty sidekick vibrated furiously on the nightstand. I sluggishly turned over, the creak of my bones harmonizing with the rusty coils of the box spring. My dad loves to call me for no reason, often early in the day. Of course, I recognize this emerging habit in myself as my daughters prepare to flee the nest. Just hearing the voice of your progeny makes the world seem momentarily okay. But on this particular day, at 6 a.m., I pressed the decline button and stuffed the phone into the top drawer next to Gideon. Only seconds later, the nightstand began to pulsate like a subwoofer with a busted tweeter. Damn it, Dad, I need some sleep. Hello, I croaked dramatically, exaggerating my distress the way children do with their parents. Turn on the TV right now, he barked. I fumbled for the remote and jabbed at the power button. The cathode ray tube warmed just in time to project the image of the second plane hitting the South Tower. Wake up, Eric, I shouted at my brother. It's World War III. We all remember where we were, and my office was two blocks north of the World Trade Center, and I lived just across the river in Brooklyn Heights. Yet there I was, just hours after the first attack on American soil since Pearl Harbor, helplessly wandering a deserted boardwalk 3,000 miles away, desperately trying to reach Skyler. Eventually, I did. She, like hundreds of thousands, had tried to retreat to the countryside, only to abandon our neighbor's explorer in the emergency lane of the chock-a-blocked Brooklyn-Queens Expressway. It seems ridiculous now, but at that juncture, none of us could predict what was coming next. On Saturday, September 15th, The first day the FAA lifted restrictions, I boarded a JetBlue flight home. There were plenty of white knuckles, despite the captain's assurance that this particular Saturday was likely the safest day to fly in the history of aviation. Approaching JFK, we circled broadly around the no-fly zone. The plane was pin-drop quiet as we peered out at the plumes of smoke curling up from the absence. Tragedy makes everyone feel the same. Despite the anguish born for souls lost and the ever-pervading dust, 
New York City was an extraordinary place to live in the wake of 9-11. For a time, our collective grief eclipsed the petty divisions of race, religion, color, and creed. Perfect strangers hugged on the subway platform and bought each other rounds of Jameson's. Random acts of kindness were the norm. The loss of these iconic buildings unveiled a truth even more towering. We are all connected by a power greater than ourselves. 9-11 slapped us with perspective. I remember cops looking the other way as tavern revelers spilled out onto the sidewalks and into the streets. We questioned our self-imposed rules as well. Why not take a chance? Skylar was one of those inspired to do something risky with her one wild and precious life. She opened a yoga studio at Ground Zero called Kula, Sanskrit for intentional community. I sat in the front row as the beleaguered denizens of lower Manhattan traipsed up the cockeyed lime green stairs and rolled out their mats, drenched in sweat and hearts cracked open in the alpenglow of the practice a motley collection of crushed souls sat cross-legged on a stained futon and, in communion, healed. Witnessing this phenomenon bent the arc of my personal and professional life. Of course, while one finds company in shared pain, nothing unites like a common enemy, especially when the source of the pain is outfitted in a robe and a turban. With a 92% approval rating, W led us into two wars, one arguably more justified than the other. Terrorism became the new rallying cry in the endless war of good versus evil. Having defeated fascism and communism, liberalism had a focused, albeit not completely novel, antagonist. And this particular adversary did not commandeer legions of green men or operate from a lavish palace or even rule a nation. He maneuvered from a remote cave where he prayed and fasted and directed a decentralized guerrilla force of non-state actors. Bin Laden was more slippery than Hitler or Khrushchev. We rarely saw him. It was harder to know what we were fighting against or, I suppose, for. Certainly in the wake of 9-11, Islam became the symbol of terrorism and backwards fundamentalism. But it was harder to distinguish friend from foe, given our many alliances across the Muslim world. After bin Laden was executed in 2011, the identity of liberalism's enemy became even more opaque. Now, why did we remain in Afghanistan for another decade? To nation build? To protect our national security? To prop up an increasingly old school military industrial complex? The enthusiasm to spread liberalism around the world has waned with the Western world's own disenchantment with it. While certain sectors of society have benefited from liberals' embrace of globalism, free markets, and multiculturalism, those left behind have taken umbrage. The last 10 years has brought a simmering cultural divide to full boil. This yawning chasm pits populists, generally white and rural, against elites, a mishmash of cosmopolitan institutions, executives, experts, and intellectuals. We live in a society that sanctifies individualism and capitalism. Yet while everyone wants to be a billionaire, 
the billionaires also appear to be the most reviled clique on earth. And while there are still chest-thumping tyrants, notably Putin, Xi Jinping, and Kim Jong-un, that rankle us, our daily villains are more familiar, if at once popular and abhorred. Zuckerberg has polluted the information ecosystem to the precipice of epistemological collapse. Trump, in his unwillingness to accept a peaceful transfer of power, has undermined confidence in elections. Bill Gates, despite pledging to give away $130 billion in his lifetime, is perceived as stripping the world's agrarian class from the right to control their own inputs. Anthony Fauci, not a billionaire, but the contentious face of public health, is leading a one-size-fits-all approach to our pandemic. And Mr. Bezos is squeezing himself into rocket cockpits while also squeezing small businesses through monopolistic pricing. And for those in the ideological backwaters of the internet, even Oprah is in a tunnel extracting adrenochrome from Christian babies. In the absence of free elections, reliable expertise, and trusted institutions, including media and science, liberalism has little to brag about. However, those keen to tear it down, the Brexiteers, the alt-right, QAnon, the Oath Keepers, and others on the thinner edges of the branch, offer little in the way of solutions. We are left with a showdown between nihilism and those of us madly scurrying around trying to patch liberalism's leaky hull. And we don't want to return to the divine right of kings, miasma theory, or even three channels on the telly. But what do we want? When COVID reared its spiky head, I thought it might provide us with common cause. If there is anything that underscores our mutual interdependence, it's a viral epidemic in which my well-being is dependent on yours. But SARS-CoV-2 has proven to be a more elusive and sinister villain than even a man in a cave. We can't see it at all. And pointedly, a primary strategy in protecting each other is distancing from one another. Far from unifying America around a shared objective, it has only exacerbated the polarity. Now, given the scale of COVID's damage, the utter lack of collective grief, like the one we experienced after 9-11, unsettles me. Despite causing more than 200 times the fatalities of 9-11, no one is producing thrillers about COVID. It's an unmotivating dirge of a killer. But it's not just COVID's lack of dramatic intrigue that has contributed to our inability to come together. As a society, we just don't experience life the same way we did 20 years ago. Artificial intelligence serves us up our own personalized and curated version of reality, a crystal vase shattered into 330 million shards. It leads me to wonder whether it is better to have flawed intersubjective truth or no truth at all. Is it better to have Walter Cronkite or YouTube? I often argue that both the greatest and most terrifying human projects are predicated on our special ability to cooperate flexibly at scale. The erosion of social cohesion has led us into a murky future, especially as we stare climate reality directly in the eyes. But one thing is clear. After 20 years, thousands of deaths, and $2 trillion, we have a new enemy, ourselves. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Commune Podcast. Feel free to drop me a line any old time at jeffk at onecommune.com. And if so inclined, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's all from the Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.